Welcome to a single serving podcast. I'm your host, Shaney Silver, and I want to change the narrative around being single because so far it's had pretty bad PR. What if we stopped seeing single life as wrong and stopped trying so hard to fix it by finding partnership at any cost? Relationships are amazing and we deserve to have them. We just don't deserve to be miserable in the meantime. If you're ready to stop hating single life and to recognize that loving single life doesn't mean you'll be single forever, keep listening. This podcast publishes new episodes every Monday. You can find one episode per month on all your favorite free access platforms. All other weekly episodes are accessible by becoming a patron of this podcast on Patreon. You'll find the link in the show notes for this episode. By becoming a patron, you'll also get access to the Facebook group for this podcast, a supportive community space for celebrating single life, not just for dealing with it. There's so much joy, freedom, and potential in being single. My fear is that if we only ever see our singlehood as something that's wrong with us, something that has to be fixed as soon as possible by finding a partner, we'll miss out on a really important time in our lives, and we might even settle for less than what we really want. If you're sick of the shame of being single and sick of feeling helpless and unable to feel better, this is your podcast, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to the first episode of a single serving podcast in 2021. I always get so excited about the new year. I love New Year's Eve almost as much as I love Halloween. And I often forget that it's basically just another day of the week, but I feel like we have to glean optimism wherever we can these days. So I'm very excited about the new year. I'm so excited about all of the content that I have to share with you in the new year. There are so many wonderful episodes coming up and I can't wait to share them with you. If you are a brand new listener, to this podcast. Welcome. I'm so happy to have you. Um, I also strongly encourage that you go back and listen to the episode that I published one week before this one. It's called Whatever the Fuck We Want. And um, it's a good, you know, first step into this space where we discuss how much being single doesn't suck. I, I really like that episode for just sort of like kicking things off uh, on the right note if you're a new listener. If you're not a new listener, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, welcome back. So much good stuff to share with you in 2021, starting with today's episode featuring Jody Day. If you have been a listener for a while, you know that I basically connect with all of my guests either via Twitter or because of you. And one of you shared Jody's work, uh, Gateway Women, with me recently. And obviously, I, I instantaneously reached out to Jody because I wanted to talk to her. Uh, so Jody's work centers around what it's like to be child free not by choice. And if you've been a listener of mine for a while, you know that I am child-free by choice. It is my choice to uh, not pursue parenthood. That is not my path in life. But I know that there are so many members of this community that do want to be parents. And so I'm so grateful to Jody for joining me to have this discussion. I love the way she approaches her work. There is so much warmth and honesty and like practicality to the way that she discusses this topic. And it's a topic that is really important to me to be able to share with you, but it's not a perspective that I hold. So it's really important to me to speak with people like Jody and many, many more so that we can have discussions about what it's like to want children and to not yet have them or to not ever have them. So it's a very important discussion. It's very dear to my heart and I'm so grateful to Jody for joining me. Uh, so I'm going to start that in just a second, but um, as I often do, I want to read a message that I recently received um, and it has to do with that podcast episode I mentioned earlier, whatever the fuck we want. Um, I just thought that this was a really cool message. I thought this person like 
fully gets it. And I wanted to share it with you because I thought it might be expansive for you. So here's the note that I received. Oh, Shaney, I'm listening to whatever the fuck we want from the 28th. And I had to send you a message. I've been listening for almost a year and have already left a review and shared, but I had to tell you this since I've been listening I have stopped focusing on catching a partner and instead on my well-being. I have not hit up or answered my ex that I dumped who couldn't get it together. I got out of a toxic work environment. I moved and bought my first house. Also, I competed in my first bodybuilding show. Thank you so much for dealing out empowerment and self-worth. That is one of my favorite messages I have ever received. And, um, the, I, I, I don't even know where to start. This person has just looked at every part of their lives and done what they wanted to do with it. And that's, that's the core of feeling better about being single is it doesn't just relate to your dating life or lack thereof or whatever. It can permeate through every part of the way you live your life. When you stop seeing this singlehood, as like a to-do list item that you have to check off and fix before you can really live. You're just reiterating to yourself over and over and over that you're not real yet, that you're not an adult yet, that you can't start living yet. And I hate that message because you are full and valid and real and amazing right now. And I want us to live that way. And this person sent me a message telling me how they're living that way. And it was just the brightest the brightest way to start my new year. So thank you so much to this person for sending in that message and congratulations on everything you have done for yourself. And I'm so proud of you. I hope you are so proud of you. And um, I hope it's really encouraging for everyone else to hear your story. So I'm going to go ahead and start this episode with Jody Day. Thank you all so much for listening. A huge, massive, gargantuan thank you to everyone who has come over to the Patreon community for this podcast. Um, you are the reason this podcast gets to exist in 2021. So thank you so, so much. Um, if you are not familiar with what I'm talking about, there is a link in the show notes to become a patron of this podcast on Patreon. One episode of this podcast per month will publish to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all the free access platforms you love. And then every other weekly episode will publish on Patreon only. So you'll be able to access the episode through Patreon. You'll also get access to the Facebook group for this podcast. And you will also get access to over a year's worth of solo episodes that I've already published. So there's a lot of good stuff in there. And in addition to all that good stuff, you are supporting this podcast's very existence. So thank you so much. I'm so happy to have you. And I hope you enjoy this chat with Jody Day. I am joined today by Jody Day, who I was introduced to by this audience, which is one of my absolute favorite ways to connect with guests. So I will first say a huge thank you to the audience member who posted Jody's content in the Facebook group. Welcome, Jody, to the podcast. Hello, it's lovely to be here with you. I'm so excited to talk to you. I can't even count how many times I have said out loud to this audience that I, I'm good on the singlehood argument. I think I'm pretty good there, but I always come up against, but what if we want kids? And for me, somebody who is child-free by choice, very much so, uh, that's a boulder I can't move. And I need I need more voices than my own in this space. And I cannot thank you enough for joining me today. This is a pleasure. It's, it's such a pleasure, Shaney, to be here with you. And uh, I, I think I know who that member is. Yeah. Um, so thank you to her too. 
So for those who don't know about you yet and who are about to, what would you want an audience of single people to know about you as we begin our chat? Okay, so I'm in my mid-50s. I'm 56. Um, I spent kind of the most part of my 40s single after um, crashing and burning my way out of... (laughs) out of a relationship come marriage, which I'd been in for 16 years. So I'd been with someone since my kind of early 20s through to my late 30s. Um, And then I found myself um, single and childless at 38. And it really, really shocked me because um, I was not prepared for how people were going to view me as a single, childless, middle-aged woman. And I think I had kind of imagined I had a certain amount of social status. And what I discovered when I got divorced was that I didn't, that actually my social status belonged to my husband. It belonged to the partnership. It didn't belong to me. I became social plankton. Um, And because I also didn't have that kind of thing of being a mum, I really had no kind of identity in society. And I had been a a feminist when I was younger, Um, You know, as a teenager, I was kind of politically very aware. I went to sleep in my marriage. I think it was part of the kind of surrendering that whole thing of really, you know, I was so desperate to have a successful marriage coming from a very unhappy family start that I think I made a lot of both conscious and unconscious compromises to try and make that marriage work. And when I came out of them, it was a very rude awakening on, on very many levels And I consider that I had a couple of relationships um, in my sort of early 40s. Um, I had what I call, I call it baby mania, very early days of internet dating. And I was out there. I was the walking wounded. Um, I was not really in any shape to be dating. But my mission was to meet someone and do IVF. I mean, I could have put it on a bumper sticker. Anyway, it didn't work. Um, and I dated some very unsuitable people in the, you know, and I was very clear about my, my aims, but it didn't work out for me. And then at 44 and a half, because these things really matter, the halves, when you're still hopeful of having a family, split up from my most sort of, you know, likely post-divorce relationship and realized it was game over for me and having a family. And then I realized that I fell into a pit of grief over my childlessness. So that's the kind of the, the, the potty thing. I think I'd also like to say that my single years, which uh, for me lasted until I was 52, were profoundly the most shaping of my adult life. They were the most creative, the most productive, the most consciousness raising. I owe so much of who I am today to those years. And I was thinking about it before our call. In some ways, I still feel kind of single even though I'm, I, I'm in a very happy relationship because the consciousness that I developed during that time just feels so me and so precious and I never want to lose it. You have that in common with every very happily partnered person I have interviewed. They have all oh. told me in some capacity that they still retain a single identity and it's educated me so much on the value of maintaining mine someday when I am also in a partnership. But I would agree with you on the uh, value of single years. I have 
like I would call these my awake single years. I spent about 10 of them asleep. It's possible to be asleep as a single as well. And I, I would say that the great awakening happened about two or three years ago. And, and that's what this podcast was born out of. So you have, um, it's, it's, it's cool to hear you say that there's, there's that retention of a single identity and it's, it's rare that you hear it, but I think there's so much value in it and so much value in, in coming to live that. Um, and I look forward to doing it one day. Well, I remember actually my partner, when we were first sort of getting to know each other, at one point he kind of looked at me and he said, so you don't need me to fix your life. You don't want my support. You don't need this. You don't want that. And he was like, what do, what do you need me for? And I said, oh, I don't need you in my life. I want you in my life. And he went, that is just the most wonderful thing I've ever heard. I, I, and, and that's, that's the, I guess, the core of the, the awakening work that we share. It's the most wonderful thing I've ever heard as well. That's, that's really poignant to, to let that sink in and to, um, God, and I've heard that recently too. I feel like I'm being told something universally i've i've heard Ooh. right like heard a very similar story a few times lately of it's not about need it's about want and there's a difference i think relationships are a choice that you make every day i think both people have to make that choice every day yeah well certainly having experience when that's not happening yeah right. yep so your work is a huge part of why we are chatting today can you tell everybody what well, what it is that you do, and then what you love about it, and what drew you to doing this kind of work. Sure. So I'm a, a psychotherapist, an author, a social entrepreneur, and I'm, I'm known for my work as being the founder of Gateway Women, which is a global friendship and support network for childless women. And that's women who are childless, not by choice. And um, I mean, it started coming up for it actually for a decade, it's a decade ago this year, uh, 2021. And it's interesting, you know, what sort of called me to the work? Well, the work called me rather than the other way around. I had spent a few years trying to talk to well, basically anyone who would listen um, about how I felt about not having children. And the list of people who would listen was basically no one. Uh, I would just get bingoed, you know, I'm, I'm younger, I'm quite young looking for my age, and it was always, oh, you've still got time, why don't you have one on your own, have you thought about adoption, really, you're not over that yet, um, whatever it was, and I realised that nobody would actually let me talk about the thing I was trying to talk about, which was not, I want to have a baby, it's like, I've accepted that's not going to happen, and I'm trying to work out what that means for me, and no one, everyone just either wanted to shut me up, shut me down, or fix me. Uh, no one would actually hear what I was trying to talk about. We and, have that in common too. Yeah. <laughs> it's because you're communicating a very different idea that people aren't so used to casually hearing in passing. I think when you're trying to change minds, it's very, very difficult to get people to listen to you. Mm, maybe they hear part of it and then they just click into the bingo. They think, oh, it's this bit. And this included therapists, doctors, Dr. Google, you know, all of them. I couldn't get an answer. I couldn't get a hearing. And so I'd been blogging for a couple of years on a kind of personal blog, you know, sort of very long time ago. It was on Blogger, you know, about films I'd seen, things I was doing. And I'd got to a point where, you know, one of my three readers, all of whom knew me, um, 
said, you know, when I read your stuff now, I kind of can hear you talking. And that seemed like a really significant thing for me that I suppose I had, quote unquote, found my voice on that. And then I had this idea that I would just write a blog about about my childlessness, about the conversations I was trying to have. And I did a sort of entrepreneur's kind of 30-day challenge thing. And the challenge at the end of that was to create my, create my website and to get a, a talk booked, my first talk booked. And I did. And the first day I, after my first blog was published, I got my first piece of PR. Yeah, I know, after the first blog. And then I gave my public talk uh, about six weeks after that. And that led, uh, there was a journalist in the audience for that in a sort of women's business in business club. And actually about nine months later, that led to an article in The Guardian, which is quite a sort of liberal British newspaper, but it, it went viral. Um, and it was, I may not be a parent, but I'm still a person or something like that. And so right from the off, I think the thing that was so powerful for me is that from that very first blog, women from all around the world started leaving comments on the blog saying things like, how do you know the exact words that are in my head? Or I thought I was the only person who thought these things. And I remember sitting at my desk in my little studio apartment on my own, my life in absolute pieces around me because I was grieving and I didn't know I was grieving. So, I mean, everything was just, you know, such a state, you know, unopened mail, you name it. And I, I thought, I had tears running down my face. I thought, I'm not alone. And that was the beginning of Gateway Women. And what happened over the next few years is I, I kept creating what I needed and didn't exist. And as I did so, I found that other women needed it too. And a decade on, um, it's this global organization with a reach of 2 million women with workshops all around the world and a fantastic community and a book. And, a, and I'm apparently now, I'm the grand dame of childlessness or I'm the... Uh, apparently I'm the rock star and someone the other day uh, told me I'm actually the Beyonce of childlessness which is so far my favorite it is mine as well. I want that the outfits and the moves <laughs> we all do we <laughs> all do did you find I had to teach myself how to read the emails from readers and listeners because I couldn't take it at first I couldn't absorb that much love and thanks from mm an email or a DM, I, I didn't know how to accept it. I really didn't. I had to teach myself how to do it. I'm glad I did. It was worth it. Kind of overwhelming at times. Um, the emotional labor of, of, of receiving is, is hard. Uh, and I think if we've been either through our childhood or maybe through years of kind of almost emotional malnutrition, it can be almost a bit too rich at first. Yes. Yeah, that is, that is certainly the case for me. Um, so my audience is familiar with me discussing my choice to be child-free. Uh, they're very familiar with it at this point. But can you describe for us what it means to be child-free, not by choice or childless? Because I imagine, and now having watched videos with you in them, that it is uh, very, very different depending on the individual. Yes. I mean, to be childless it's going to vary from, from woman to woman, but ultimately it means you, you hoped to become a mum. And that may have been a very huge part of your idea of what you thought your adult life was going to be like. And you have invested and pre-invested a great deal of your identity 
around the identity of being a mum, of being a mother with all of your friends, within your family, of your life course, your life goals and your life milestones, all being connected to being a mother. So when you realise, and it can be a very shocking realisation or a slow realisation, that that's not your path, it's not just that you lose the children that you wanted to have and you grieve them. You know who they are. You imagine you grieve them. You, you're also grieving your identity over the life course. Grandmotherhood, great-grandmotherhood, being a soccer mum or a this kind of... All of the things you imagined, the children's birthday parties, teaching them to ride a bike, uh, visiting them when they leave college, you know, the graduation ceremonies being with your sister and brother and having children together and being part, all of the things you've imagined, the levels of loss are epic. And they are not in any way recognized because it's what's called disenfranchised grief. It's a living loss that is with you for the rest of your life and which is socially unacknowledged and recognized. And it is a profound and life-changing loss. While simultaneously, I would imagine watching everyone around you that you've ever met become a parent. Pretty well much. I mean, I certainly, when I started writing my blog, didn't know anyone else either in my family, in my circle of friends, amongst my colleagues at work, or even in public life, who was childless, not by choice. I knew a couple of child-free women in my circle of friends, and that was it. I knew someone who who decided to adopt and it had worked. I knew someone who decided to do IVF because she was having trouble and it had worked. I didn't know anyone who had wanted to become a mother or not wanted to become a mother that hadn't got their choice. And yet, you know, when I started uh, researching and writing about it, I found that for my age group, born 1964, it was one in five women in, in, in the UK, one in four for my, my cohort. And I was like, well, where the fuck are they? <laughs> I don't know any. And it is a very common experience that women have when they come to Gateway Women of just like, they don't know anyone. However, what I'm seeing definitely in my younger members in the, the sort of the, the kind of the elder end of the millennial around sort of 38, 39, is many more of them are familiar with other people in their life who don't have children either by choice or not by choice. Um, I think it is becoming more common and actually in my book I talk about I think there's going to be a big rise in both voluntary and involuntary childlessness in the millennial generation for a lot of complex reasons. I tend to agree with you except every time I just blame it on online dating that's just where my mind tends to go every time. Um, I watched a, a video of yours on your website and I hadn't ever heard the term social infertility before so thank you for educating me on that um, and Quickly, would you, would you tell everyone, I assume that everyone has watched everything that I've watched, but could you tell everyone what social infertility is? Well, social infertility is, um, is actually now an accepted definition of, of infertility with the World Health Organization. So it is uh, not having a suitable or willing partner to, uh, to start a family with during your, um, during your fertile years. And that can be for many, many reasons. I mean, quite a few of my members are also childless by relationship, so that they are in a relationship, but their partner is either child-free or perhaps has children by a previous relationship and isn't willing to have more. And that's very complicated too. So it's not necessarily just about singleness. 
Um, and I think it does also, you know, I think we also need to include the LGBT community in this because there's a, you know, often childlessness is seen as a, well, like so many things, like a sort of heterosexual white middle class issue. It is, you know, it's an issue that affects all of us and I think social infertility and medical infertility, you know, can come together for lesbian, gay and queer women in complex ways. So I asked that question because there is a phrase that I'm assuming comes up within the child-free space um, that I would love your thoughts on, as my thoughts have been very heavily influenced by my own upbringing in this way. Um, What about the, why not just have one on your own argument? I can't really imagine what it is like to, to field that. First of all, that's what we call a bingo. Mm -hmm. It's one of those classic phrases. Um, if the person decides that you look like you still could have a child, that is still quite a likely thing they will say to you. It is a really extraordinary one, though, because I'm actually uh, the daughter of someone who had a child on her own. Um, it wasn't a plan. My mum was a 60s Catholic teenager, gone a bit wild in London. Um, and I was an unplanned pregnancy born to an 18-year-old teenager. And uh, my dad's not on the scene. So my mum brought great shame on her family by doing this. So much so she was, I was born in the Catholic home for fallen women um, and was meant to be put up for adoption. And then my mum changed her mind at the last minute and the nuns kicked her out with nowhere to go because her own family had turned their back on her because of getting pregnant. Um, My grandparents relented and, you know, six weeks later I I was reunited. My mum was taken in by, by her parents again But it was the most shameful thing a generation ago was to be an unmarried mother. And it was all over the British papers. It was unmarried mothers were the ones that were going to ruin society. It was the most shameful thing you could be. Fast forward a generation. And now the most shameful thing you can be is to be a single childless woman. You know, that is just completely unacceptable. And we're the ones now that are going to break the social care system, break the economy, break society wasn't last time I looked. In fact, you know, Bella de Paolo's amazing research shows that single childless women are the, are the ones actually holding civic society together. You're all welcome. Yes, exactly. And we all pay taxes so that everyone else's kids can get an education, get vaccinated, go to school, go, you know, all of those things. But hey, we're not doing anything. We're just, we're just burning the world down with our child-free and childlessness and our refusal to date unsuitable men. Oh, I'm certainly trying to. Certainly. <laughs> I'm on it. I'm on it. So um, I think the idea that it's now acceptable to have a baby on your own. I think the first thing you should say back to that is, well, why didn't you? You know, because it's like, if it's so slam dunk easy. And I think it really takes away this idea that what we, what we wanted and what we want perhaps for our, for our children is for them to be born into a, a stable and loving relationship. And sometimes now it seems that when people are saying that, it's as if that's an optional extra that no one really needs. And considering so many people have actually been brought up by single mums who didn't choose that and may have seen how incredibly hard that is. You know, the idea that this is some kind of box ticking thing, oh, have a partner, well, that's just an extra, you don't really need that, is such an insult. I'd have to say it's also an insult you know, to those potential partners out there. 
that they're just some sort of, you know, lifestyle optional extra. You know, we want dads or other mums for our kids. And it's okay to want that. I think it's a way of, the reason we call it a bingo is it's a way of saying, this isn't really a problem because this is a solution. So stop talking about it. Yeah. It's incredibly invalidating. Yeah. It's it's shaming. It's get back in your hole and stop. There's still stuff you can do about this. So come back to me when you've tried everything. Come back to me when you've tried everything that I told you to try. (laughs) Yes, which I would never do, by the way. Unbelievable. Okay. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, Another thing that um, I I rarely, if not never, hear is that uh, someone else acknowledging that we, we, uh, very broadly, generationally speaking, were raised one way and then had to go and look for partners in another. And um, as I mentioned, I'm really confident in my ability to communicate to single women uh, who are not single by choice. Um, The fact that dating is so hard and punishing it probably never makes me angrier than when I think of the people in my community who want to be parents. And um, it just, it, it really upsets me because I, I don't, how do I put this? See, I don't even know how to put this stuff. Maybe it's, there's nothing that you're held back from more that's more upsetting to me because it just seems so fucking unfair. Like that, that is the, the most unfair thing to me is when I speak to single people in my community who want to be parents, who want to be parents in a partnership that is a valid want, and they mm-hmm. just can't fucking meet anyone. And I don't know how to fix it. So it makes me very, very angry. I know how to fix if you want to like your single life more. Come to me. My digital door is open to you. But I don't know how to stop being angry about this for them on their behalf. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, is it okay to be this angry. Absolutely, it's okay to be this angry. And I think one of the things that is really upsetting about wanting to find that partner that you will then form a family with can also be that for women, you know, men have more time to find that partner. There is a fantasy that men have forever um, that is a really potent, uh, I use that word advisedly, myth about male fertility. Male fertility also declines rapidly. A little bit older, around about the age of 40, it starts to go down very, very sharply, which is one of the reasons often why a lot of women partnered with men in their 40s and olders. You know, the combined quality of the sperm and the quality of the eggs does lead to a heartbreaking increase in miscarriages, you know, in in pregnancies in your early 40s, those, those final years when you're just hoping you might manage to have a child. But they do have a little bit more time and there are the outliers, you know, like Charlie Chaplin and things like that, who, who, but they are not, that is not a predictable thing. They are the outliers of male fertility. So men have, a lot of men don't know that as well. So they imagine they've got all the time in the world to, you know, to have, to have a family. Um, if they perhaps knew that their time was limited, maybe they'd actually, you know, get themselves organized a little bit sooner, stop playing the field or whatever it is they're playing. I, I think the anger for me is the, is the powerlessness, you know, because um, this is not something we can fix for ourselves or we can fix for anyone else. And many of, you know, I, I came from, you know, I was sort of really in relationships from teenage years onwards. I, I moved from sort of one long-term relationship to another, to a marriage, 
and then I, you know, then I left and I was just crazy for a few years and then I was single. But that, I, you know, I, I didn't really know how much it had changed until I started dating at 40. And, you know, and I was, I was really shocked that suddenly it, it had become um, commercialized and almost my, I'd become commercialized. It was like it was about making deals in some ways. I, the whole thing was, was very icky. Um, I didn't, something that really helped me actually was uh, some of the work around numbers, which I really explore in my book as well, about how our generation, um, you know, I'm in, I'm in my, you know, I'm sort of the last year of baby boom, first year of Gen X, you know, in my, in the last 50 years, we've had um, women's, um, women's access to the pill, women's access to legalized and safe abortion, women's access to higher education, the professions and fertility treatment in one generation. It has completely changed the dating and mating landscape. But we are still operating on these kind of weird 1950s rules about how relationships happen, who asks who, you know, who has value, who doesn't have value, what those unconscious contracts are. And the unconscious contracts that our parents had do not fit the life we're living. I don't know any woman for whom having a job is an option. You know, it's like now everyone has to work. And, you know, those early years of your sort of 20s and your early 30s, your mid-20s to your mid-30s, you know, when your fertility is probably at its, its peak for having children, particularly, you know, 25 to sort of 31, 32, you know, these are really, really hot career years if you're trying to build a career. So what's happened is women have gone into um, a working world that was designed around a male pattern of fertility, which is to work your ass off in your 20s and 30s and have kids in your 40s. That works for male fertility. It does not work for female fertility. There is a huge clash of paradigms. And, you know, and women like us are the ones that are sort of living that. But because we think it, we're told is something wrong with us, if we're single and we're looking for a part, we have to change. When in actual fact, the system is stacked against us and we're still looking to marry up or partner up. We're still looking for a partner of the same socioeconomic or maybe slightly higher status than us, or if all failing that, taller than us. And, <laughs> and you know, but there aren't as many of them to go around because there are now so many more smart, educated, professional, um, independent, educated women. And we haven't had like this massive increase in men of that kind. So there are now many more women looking to partner a much smaller pool of professional or let's just say solvent, you know, men. You really so, think so? Do you really uh, think uh, that there uh, are... The numbers back it up. You know, this is in my book. It is not our fault. The system is, I mean, in China, they call it the, the problem of the A1 women and the D4 men, you know, because it's, it's kind of high status educated women and I mean, we saw it in, um, you know, Sex in the City all that time ago when, you know, Miranda partners with her really cute uh, plumber guy and the problems that came out of that. There's this sense of we're out of sync. We're going through the biggest upheaval in our sort of social setup in the developed world that we've ever been through since the beginning of patriarchy. And, and this, this mismatch between women's desire to partner and have children and find an appropriate and stable partner for that 
and how things are organized, it's a really bad mismatch and it's not our fault. Nothing wrong with the women who are out there looking for partners to have children with. I couldn't agree more that it is not our fault. I tend to, I trust the numbers because they're numbers, right? But I definitely question the sources and the, um, the structure of the data gathering because I have a really hard time believing that there are too few people of any cohort. I have a, I have a hard time believing that there are not enough people out there for us. That is hard because I know how big the planet is and I know how many different kinds of people can be drawn to and fall in love with people who are dissimilar from them. So I tend to worry about telling women that there aren't enough men. Of course, this is a very heterosexual argument, but you know what I mean? It scares me. I, I agree with you. I think it's to be really to be really clear. I'm talking about finding them within that particular window. Yeah, we potentially still have fertility. I think for me, when I moved beyond that period, and um, I, I thought, well, if I'm not looking for someone to have children with, um, and I am heterosexual, what kind of guy am I looking for? And I realised I had no idea. And I thought this is a really good idea not to be dating. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to think about this until I know what it is I'm really looking for. And actually I was then, you know, single for six, seven years because actually I realized I wasn't looking for a man. Um, I was, there were a lot of other things I was looking for. And I found that for me, uh, probably a combination of the menopause and, you know, those other life changes that actually a period of celibacy uh, worked really, really well for me. Um, I, 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 I missed I missed touch um, and um, I was very happy that a cat came back into my life from when I'd been married. Um, but I, I actually didn't miss sex and I didn't miss, I actually didn't miss being in a relationship, but I was coming from the privileged point of view of having had, you know, uh, having had that sense of having been in a very long relationship in my marriage. So this, so single, you know, singleness for me at midlife felt like a little bit of an adventure um, but that may not be how it feels to everyone. So I don't want to kind of globalize my experience, but I, yeah. I, and then I kept meeting. I realized actually also that of all of the people I knew who were partnered, um, I didn't really want to be with any of their partners, even in a, you know, I just thought, well, if this is kind of what's out there, I'm really happy just to stay single. And I, I developed a mantra for myself, which was also, single or secure so I thought my next partner if I have another partner because I came to a point of accepting my singleness was was probably lifelong and I decided to embrace that possibility um, I thought well I'd either like someone to be securely attached and this is a psychotherapeutic term um, you know or I'll stay single because I also thought if I'm ever in another relationship again I get to be the tricky one Tired of being the kind of the grounded one that holds holds the artist or the entrepreneur together. God, I am too. Uh, for those who don't know the term secure attachment, I strongly recommend reading the book Attached, and I will link to it in the show notes if you haven't yet read it, but I know many of you have. Um, I feel like that was a very uh, thorough answer on making me feel less pissed off all the time. So thank you very much for your efforts. I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> um, 
what what does being childless look and feel like in an effort to broaden perspectives for those of us who either don't have or don't want children so that we I'm thinking of this from the perspective of wanting to be more supportive to our childless friends. Um, in one of your videos, I heard you mention being left out of parties. And that one stung so much because I remember the first time I went on Instagram and I saw a picture of a group of people that I was friends with, all of them. And I wasn't invited because it was like a kid's birthday party. And I just sort of realized like, this is what I'm going to be left out of. And I'm going to need to get okay with that or speak up loudly. Um, but I, that moment of feeling like I had been passed over socially was really hard to take. So I want to, um, I would like to be more supportive of people that I know and certainly this audience. I'm wondering how you think we might be able to be more supportive to our childless friends. That's a really beautiful thing to ask. Thank you. My pleasure. I guess just as there is no one kind of child-free woman, there's no one kind of childless woman. And it, it varies over time as well. I mean, my, my childless experience has, has changed so much. You know, there was a time when I was childless, but I saw myself as someone who was definitely still going to be a mum. So all of my friends were, were, were having children and I imagined that those children would one day be the playmates of, of my children. So I, I didn't have any, well, I didn't have any complicated feelings about them except just to hurry up, you know, when is it going to be my turn? You know, I struggled with unexplained infertility. When I became single and childless, I think actually, strangely enough, my singleness was more of a, a barrier to being accepted in my social circle than my childlessness at first, because childlessness was something I was struggling with privately. Um, and I just, I guess I was a you know, reasonably attractive middle-aged woman. And for some reason, suddenly I was not welcome and not invited. And my um, delightfully chaotic, now clean, but then still struggling with addiction, ex-husband was invited everywhere. So it was really hard that for years, everyone had been telling me, you should leave him. And then I left him and I got, and I was dropped, you know, so it's uh, because he was the guy. One of the other things I've hated <laughs> about the way that single people are treated in the world is the difference between a, uh, a spare single woman and a spare single man. The spare single woman can't come along because she's going to steal someone's man away, but the spare single man, oh, let's bring him. We can introduce him to someone like that is yet another double standard. We could be here all day discussing them, but it's just, it's. It's fucked. That's what it is. It's fucked. I don't like being seen as a threat while a single man, just like me, is mm -hmm. seen as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make me feel good socially at all. No, it's it's not meant to make you feel good. I mean, it's true. Just... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I came to understand over time that I it was hard for me because I lost my sense of safety in a group of women because I had always been able to talk to my girlfriends about anything, you know, do you think he's having an affair? Can you have a look at this lump? You know, whatever it is, you could go, however gross it was or personal it was, it could go there. But when I got to the point when I realized I wasn't going to be a mum and my friends were, it became this baby elephant in the room that we couldn't talk about. I couldn't talk about my envy and my grief and my longing. And they just didn't know what to do with me. So one of the reasons I think that people started to exclude me from things is because they literally didn't know to how to have the real conversations that we needed to have in order to maintain the friendship. We needed to have some really uncomfortable conversations 
And there's this myth that female friendship can survive anything. It, it, it can't, it doesn't always survive childlessness unless you can talk about this. You know, when you see someone else's parenting, it's like that thing that childless and child-free women aren't allowed to, to have any opinion whatsoever about parenting or children, as if we have never been a child. And, you know, I, I'm a trained child and adolescent psychotherapist, but hey, what do I know? No opinions allowed. And, um, and you know, lots of, lots of my members are, are teachers and pediatricians and, you know, really, really important professionals in children's lives, but they're not allowed to have an opinion about their sister's parenting skills or even offer support. So there's this strange siloing that goes on around parenting. And in every way, the nuclear family is really bad at including childless people and child-free people. It's really, it's a very fragile system that, that, that doesn't actually, I mean, actually, it can fall apart very quickly in nuclear family. Um, and that can really affect the children. Yet this, this extended kinship system, which is really, really normal for, for human societies and which, you know, industrial and post-industrial Western societies have shifted to this nuclear family model. It doesn't work and it excludes childless people. So on every level, you find these doors shut in your face, you know, socially, within your family, you go home for Christmas and you're offered the tent in the garden so your sister's kids can have your bed. And, and yet when you go, that's absolutely not okay with me, you're told you're being too sensitive rather than actually, hey, there's a patriarchal double standard. I'm actually still your daughter. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, my sister managed to reproduce and I didn't. At what point did this, you know, where's the memo that that meant I had to sleep in a tent? Um, so I think there's no one way to be a friend to the childless, but I'd say probably whatever the first thing that wants to come out of your mouth is, bite it back. <laughs> and then ask a curious and non-judgmental question. Whatever. And don't be afraid to have a hard conversation. Have a really interesting conversation. To yeah. have your confirmation bias trashed. I think the friendships that are meant to survive that will. I call it the fr hashtag friendship apocalypse of childlessness. Yeah. I mean, the women who come to my community are in pieces. And also I had the same experience. I thought that I must be a really bad friend, that, that my friendships were just fragmenting around me. I thought I just must be fundamentally unsuited to friendship. And, you know, through the, the wonderful women I've met through Gateway Women, through the new women I've met, I, I do have some new friends who are mothers. Uh, I do have some very old friends who are mothers. But they have one thing in common, and that is they did not collapse their identity into motherhood. They are still them. And that's not easy. And I don't, I'm not against those women that did collapse their identity into motherhood because I have a sneaking feeling I would have been one of them. I think I would have put my children's photos all over Facebook. I would have said everyone I was so-and-so's mum. I think I, I probably would have been like a serially bad offender. So I, I'm compassionate towards those women because I have some idea of maybe the, the identity longing that is, that's wrapped up in that. Um, because yeah, I look at the way I surrendered myself and my identity in my marriage. I think I probably would have done the same in motherhood. Um, mm. I have a couple friends. Well, I, I think I'm at the age now where all my, my dearest, closest friends are, if not already parents 
working on parenthood or planning for it very soon. Um, there are certain people in my life that I don't care how deep down the parenthood rabbit hole they go. They will still be my friend and I will do whatever I have to, to facilitate that happening. <laughs> like there's just no, there are certain friends in my life who are family and there is no, there is no distance that I'm comfortable with that, that motherhood would, would put in between us. Like, I feel like, can't I, participate? Like, can't I still be a part of that world and that life? I certainly hope so. The kids are super cute, but like, it's, I still want to be a part of it. I still want to be a part of my friends' lives, despite their lives massively, massively changing. I, I I don't know if it's like arrogant or selfish, but like, I want there to be room for me and I will like worm my way in because I want to be a part of this part of their lives. Yeah. I, I hear you. And I, I've heard myself say that. And then I've seen it not work out because I, I can imagine that if I were child free and I wasn't going in with my own longing and pain into that situation, then I might be prepared to put up with anything, if you know what I mean. But when yep. you're, you're carrying your own unresolved, unspoken grief and loss and your envy and your longing and your sense of exclusion and your face pressed against the wall of this party that you always wanted to be in, you bring all that with you too. It gets very complicated. And I think unless you have friends who have some inkling of how hard it is for you to show up for them, after a while, it, it's, it's just grinds. The, the gears just grind. Sometimes those friendships drift apart and they can come back later. I mean, I, you know, I've been childless for a long time. I'm in my mid-50s now. I have friendships, you know, my best friend from school, you know, she's got three grown-up children. She got divorced six years ago. Um, you know, we've really, we've really reconnected, and and that's been, you know, that's been lovely. And I, I, I have new friends who are mums. I have a, you know, I have a, a very dear friend who is, you know, I'm, I'm godmother, you know, to her daughter who who did, you know, have a baby by yourself kind of thing in her uh, in her forties. Um, so I feel I've got like. The whole range. I've also got um, godchildren who are now in their mid twenties, and nephews and nieces in their mid twenties and older, who see me as a different kind of woman, as a woman who lived a different kind of life, and they admire me for that, and they come to me from that because I'm the only one of their aunts that doesn't have children, so I'm not so and so's mum. I'm Jodie, and they really see the difference, and they really value that. I look forward to that. And see, this is why I need you on this podcast, because I'm very dedicated to maintaining friendships with the mothers and fathers in my life, but I also don't come into it with any longing. There is zero longing there. So it's a completely different like entrance into my mission because it, there's just no, I'm not grieving this. I'm not longing for this. It's This is why I have to talk to everybody and every, like, there's so many different things that impact the life of a single person so much more than just dating advice that gets fire hosed at them all the time. There are so many like different pain points and, and things to discuss that I don't, I don't see enough of. So thank you for broadening my perspective. And now I understand a different side of things. Look at that. Look at that. <laughs> We're learning here today, friends. We are learning here today. Um, speaking of my friends, the audience has some questions for you. I opened up our interview to the members of my Facebook group. And I have a couple of questions that I would love to ask you if you don't mind. Absolutely. 
Fabulous. Here is the first one. I always thought I would have kids, but never got married and didn't want to have them alone. And now I'm 45. My question is how to handle or feel better handling telling new acquaintances, especially professional ones, that I don't have kids. I think my reaction is probably mostly due to my own hangups, but I always feel weird when people ask if I have children and I have to say no. This is a, a question I get asked a lot. It's, I think it's one that as a childless woman, we all have to deal with. Um, and I would say that certainly in my experience and in the experience of many of the women I've worked with, being asked that question and the way it makes us feel changes over time as well as we become more comfortable with our childlessness. Whilst we are still grieving our childlessness and a lot of women don't know that what they're experiencing is grief, and you add the grief to the, the pronatalism, which is the ideology that says that the, uh, the only acceptable way to be a fully mature adult is to be a parent. You add sexism to that, which says the only, you know, that you, you need to be you know, either hot and dateable or you need to be a mummy, but you, know, you don't really have any roles outside those. You add ageism, sexism, pronatalism together. We're dealing with an awful lot of assumptions that people make about us, but also that we have internalized. We have to do the work to root out our own negative beliefs about ourselves that we've interjected from the culture. Because when you no longer have any shame about your singleness, your childlessness, then when someone asks you that question, there isn't a tender button they can push on. So I think when I was, uh, when I was still grieving my childlessness and people would ask me that, I, would, I, I came up with the answer, Unfortunately not. Do you have children? Unfortunately not. Because I wanted them to know that it hadn't been a choice. Because at that point, I felt very strongly that I didn't want to be confused with someone who had chosen it. Um, I had some pretty negative ideas about child-free women that I also had to root out in myself and in my consciousness and test out with my child-free friends. And it also sometimes would uh, put sometimes put the shame back on them uh, in terms. But, you know, people, even complete strangers, can be remarkably prurient about a woman's uterus. Why not is often the follow up question. This could be from someone you've never, ever, ever met and you'll never meet again. Or it could be from your new boss or it could be in an interview. It could be anywhere. And that is, you know. Women, we're such, you know, we're such compassionate, emotional laborers. It's like, give us a question, we'll, we'll try and answer it. You don't have to answer it. <laughs> you know, I would, there's actually a whole section on how to answer this question in my book, Living the Life Unexpected. I think step one, take breath. You know, think about who's asking this question of you and how much of an answer they deserve. And, you know, to use, to paraphrase Brené Brown, it's like, do they deserve your story? You know, do they get to be one of the people that hears your story? And you can have a range of answers. I like to think of it like a kind of, almost like a deck of cards. And you've got like about 10 different answers from the kind of jokey one to use at a cocktail party. Remember those? Um, to um, maybe a serious one. So you can have everything like, oh, no, I forgot. Or, you know. <laughs> you have kids? It's like, I don't think so. You know, it can be, <laughs> That's so good. That one's you know, it so can good. be a funny one or it can be unfortunately not, or it could be um, perhaps as you're a little bit further 
you know, advanced and you're a bit more comfortable with your childlessness. And this is more the kind of thing I would say now. It's like, I'm really curious as to why it's important to you to know that. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's a way of opening up a really interesting conversation. Sometimes, sometimes they could just be an asshole, and, you know, <laughs> and they'll go, well, everyone has children, you know, or something. And so I think it's take a breath and read the room. How much, you know, because actually I often just say no. But the really interesting thing is because my childlessness is no longer the most important thing you need to know about me, because childlessness is a part of my identity, it is not all of me. A decade ago, it was the most important thing you needed to know about me. And now it's part, you know, I'm a writer. You know, I'm a psychotherapist. I'm an entrepreneur. You know, I'm a lover. I'm a daughter. I'm a this. I'm a dog owner. I'm childless. I'm many things of which childless is one. But when it was raw for me, it was a very hard question to be asked. And I think you need a range of answers, including ones that protect your tender, hurting heart. You do not owe them your pain. Remembering that other people are not in charge of you is so important, particularly if you're a woman. It's like we've sort of been raised to please mm-hmm. and raised to uh, absorb other people's discomfort so that they're not uncomfortable, even if we are. Mm-hmm. And you don't owe anyone anything and they are not in charge. They are not in charge of the conversation. They are not in charge of the words that come out of your mouth. Um, hopefully they don't have to be in charge of your emotions. And I'm hoping that that with work like yours and reading books like yours, that that shame and maybe guilt can diminish so that those tender buttons become a little bit more fortified because I think that you're right. I'm no longer ashamed of being asked. So are you seeing anybody? I also have 50 responses that I can give depending on the situation and you better hope you find me on a good day. But that's only because I got to that place where I remembered other people are not in charge. There's not. Hi. Thank you for that. Um, second question. Um, how could we handle questions such as, have you thought about adoption, surrogacy, doing it on your own, pretty intimate questions that sometimes make me feel like I have to defend myself and my choices. This is similar to what we discussed above, but I like the way uh, this person asked, uh, defend myself and my choices. Mm -hmm. I would love it if we could discuss some strategy here. Absolutely. I mean, you know, following on from what you said before, you, you do not owe them an answer, um, you can you can have some jokey ones you know you can say i can give you the number of my gynecologist you can discuss it with him like i did you know um you can turn it back on them if especially with the why didn't you just adopt you can always go why didn't you um you can um you can actually say actually that's kind of like a really personal question um that i'm not really into getting into that right now and, and change the subject, you know? Say, maybe we could talk about that another time when we know each other a little bit better. So how are your kids doing? You know, just, you do not, just bat it back. You do not, if they're putting you in a position where you feel you have to defend yourself, maybe it's actually time to kind of rise above that, you know, and just, you're, you're just not gonna go there. You don't owe them an answer to those questions. Because like, what is the subtext to that? Is basically, did you try hard enough? Do you deserve my compassion? I mean, fuck you. Sorry. No apology necessary. I find that 
the age of offensive small talk needs to be over. Because a lot of the time, right, these people aren't coming at you maliciously. They're just trying to make casual conversation. This is not a casual conversation topic anymore. We need I, to stop pretending I it is. Anymore. You know, with one in four and one in five, you know, people who are childless, 90%, nine zero of those not by choice. This is no, this is a social landmine. This is no longer a safe question. Be British, talk about the weather. And even that's becoming unsafe. Even that's becoming unsafe. Talk about your dog. Talk about anything. Hi, have you seen any great movies recently? Anything. Just stop us. If someone's got kids, I guarantee within two minutes they will tell you. You do not need to ask. It's very similar to vegans. Um, (laughs) Do you find, I find that like we shouldn't have stopped going to school ever. Because right when you stop going to school is when you need to be taught so much. And I, I, I want there to be adult school. I want there to be, here are ways to make small talk with somebody that are not offensive. Here are all of the things about the world and human beings and interactions and relationships that you don't know that if we don't teach you, you're going to learn by trial and error. And a lot of that's going to be extremely painful and shitty and it didn't have to be. But no, once you're 18, you're done. Go. You're fully baked. What? Living in such a complex society that we've created, the idea that you've got it, you're ready to go at 18. I mean, the human brain isn't even fully mature until, uh, until the earliest at 25. We, we need so much. We do need adulting school. Yeah. And, and it shouldn't get it on Instagram. People who can afford therapy either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, thank you. I'm the biggest advocate of, of mental health care. And the, the boulder I come up against there is money. That's what's so hard for me is like, yeah, I, I love therapy. I think everyone should go to therapy. Not all of us can afford it. And that's, what do we do? Like, what do we do? It makes me really frustrated sometimes. Well, as a society, if we invested in the mental health of our children, young people and adults, we would save money in every other area, including sort of prison costs, health costs, so many other things. So it's just another example of, of how humans are dumb. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, some of them are getting a little bit smarter by making more financially accessible uh, digital therapy options, which I don't know uh, how the industry feels about doing these things over like video chat and phone and whatnot, but I know they exist. Um, I know several of them exist and, and I have friends that use them and like them, but. I think whatever makes, whatever makes it more accessible, you'll find, you know, that there, I think a lot of therapists may have been a little bit reserved about it. I've been working online for years I've seen, you know, I've seen the benefits um, to others and I, I get therapy myself that way. Um, and it's interesting because um, I, I still occasionally see a trauma therapist and she was someone who I, I had seen in person when I used to live in the UK and I, I don't now, I live in Ireland. And I, I had, a, I had a, trigger, a triggering situation. And um, so I reached out to her and we did a session, you know, we did a session on Zoom. I was astonished that it was possible to, to have the same experience in this way. And although I really, really miss being able to see people, I am so grateful that this technology is available. Yeah. Same. I mm. gave it a try because I was talking about like one particular uh, route for that on the podcast once. So I wanted to try it first before I, I spoke about it. And um, I didn't find any sort of difference in quality at all in between talking with someone in person and talking with someone over Zoom. I think I was more used to the physical comforts of going to an office. I think it lended a sense of importance to it, just the the uh, ceremony of it. But the yeah, actual... The ceremony. Yeah. yeah. 
So maybe just create ceremony for yourself at home. If you want to like put on a bra where you typically wouldn't, maybe that's the way to go. I don't know. (laughs) The real loser in this pandemic are bra manufacturers, I have to tell you. Are there, I'm assuming that, that wanting to become a parent and not being able to do so uh, is rough, to put it mildly. Um, are there coping skills or resources, in addition, obviously, to Gateway Women, which will be linked to in the show notes, please go click on it. Um, are there any resources or coping skills that you have found particularly helpful in the childless space as a whole? It's a good question because when I started, there wasn't anything. Um, And I have to get comfortable with saying that my work has been a game changer. Um, And also a lot of the, um, a lot of the women that I've worked with over the years who have found, who found peace and they found meaning again in their lives. Some of them have gone on to create their own offerings. And um, it's, it's wonderful now to see that there is more out there than there was a decade ago. A decade ago, there was nothing, apart from a couple of really great um, blogs from America and Canada. And they were, um, they were very much about adjusting to life as a childless woman after failed infertility treatments. But there was nothing in the space for women who are childless by circumstance, with those circumstances you know, varying incredibly widely. Um, I never had fertility treatments myself. And actually only 10% of women who are childless are childless due to infertility. 80% is childless by circumstance. I mean, it's it's so massive. So now I'd say that there's uh, podcasts are coming along. And probably the thing that's most I would talk about most is World Childless Week. So this was started five years ago by Stephanie Phillips in the UK. Um, and it's now going to be in its fifth year this year. Uh, happens in September. I think it's the second week of September in, in, in 2021. And it brings together all of the organizations like Gateway Women, the blogs, the podcasters, and everyone, and all childless people around the world for a week. And so it really, and the website's live all the year round. So just Google World Childless Week, and you will find so many different resources to explore. Um, as, as Stephanie says, you know, we're, you know, we're live for one week a year, and we're here for the rest of the year. So I'd say World Childless Week and a wonderful podcast uh, called the Full Stop Podcast, which is two women and a guy, because there are an awful lot of childless men out there too, um, two British women, one Australian guy, the Full Stop Podcast. I think these are the two I would recommend most. And I will link to both in the show notes if you'd like to check them out. Thank you. Uh, So we are speaking uh, in 2020. So uh, when this episode goes live, it will be January 4th, 2021. So this is a bit of a time capsule. And I was super nervous to record with you, not the day before the episode went live, because things change pretty quickly in 2020. And I like everything to feel new and relevant, but I am pretty confident that um, we're all in a it's almost a new year mindset. So, so that might lend itself well to, to the first episode of the new year. Along those lines though, what are you most looking forward to in this new year that we are in? Goodness, there's so many, so many things that haven't happened in, in 2020, last year. Um, I think I'm really looking forward to it not being 2020. Same. <laughs> Uh, I'm looking forward to the beginning, the tentative, tiny beginnings of being able to make a plan again. Any plan. Uh, 
We have been in um, voluntary isolation since February uh, 2020 to protect my partner's 90-year-old mother who lives with us. So we have not been out, been anywhere, seen anyone, done anything at all. And that won't be possible until she can be vaccinated. So, you know, it could be 12, 14 months of isolation. Um, I'm lucky enough that the two people and many animals I'm isolated with are all lovely. Uh, I know many single childless women who are doing similar things on their own, and it sucks. So I'm looking forward to making a plan. I'm looking forward to getting back to working on the second draft of my novel, which I haven't been able to work on in 2020. And it is, uh, it's a novel that features a single childless middle-aged woman. She's, she's the kick-ass heroine at the middle of the novel. It's a social comedy. Um, my dream is that it will be optioned by Jennifer Aniston's film company and turned into the next Bridget Jones. It's basically a comedy about being a single, childless, middle-aged, menopausal woman. And at the end of the novel, her arc is not resolved by either a relationship or a baby, which, as anyone who watches movies knows, this, you know, it used to be marriage that ended a film, and now it's a baby. Or some great guy. It's always the idea. Like, that has to be the resolution to a woman's story. And it's like, this has got to change. So I'm Whenever, looking forward to back to that. When it's out, we have your back. Please send <laughs> it to me and we will tweet at Jennifer Aniston until she notices. Yeah. Like you have, a, and your community too. Oh my God. Just Would you mind tweeting at a Jennifer Aniston? Just, just to see just to see. I want us, I want our experience to be, to become part of the mainstream and not just being, being childless. There are, there, there are child-free characters in the novel as well. Um, and there are mums and there are not mums and there is, you know, I, I just want us, you know, we are part of the story of what it means to be a 21st century woman. And I want us to be included in the story that our culture tells about women. So do I. I was very, very disappointed that at the end of Sex and the City, all four were partnered. I know. All four. Yeah. What a cop-out. You know, it just, there have to be, we have to tell more stories. We have to have more happy endings for women than just partnered, married, baby. There have to be more stories than that. I, I have to see them and I don't. And I, I really wish I did. I would love to write them. Um, I'll tweet at Jennifer Aniston's company shit. Well, I have a habit of writing books that I want to read. You know, I, yes. I wrote Living the Life Expected because it didn't exist. And after that, after my novel, I'm going to be writing a book about what it takes to become a conscious, childless elder woman. Because there isn't even a single word in the, in the British language, in the English language, for, a, for an older woman that is a term of respect other than grandmother. All of the others are insults. So I am as a hashtag apprentice crone. I'm going to reclaim crone. I'm going to reclaim old. I'm going to reclaim witch. So someone wants to call me a witch, you mean magical and powerful. Yeah, I'm cool with that. <laughs> I just want to go to the movies. That's what I would like to do oh. in 2021. I just want to go to the movies. That used to be my, uh, I was suffering from pretty severe anxiety a few years ago. And that was my coping skill. I would go to the movies in the middle of the day by myself. Yeah. And I would sit in a cool, dark theater, barely anybody in there, and just shut my brain off for two hours. Nothing. And it was it's a love of mine and I haven't been able to do it. And I'm very much looking forward to doing it again. Once the vaccine. I want to, I want to eat food. I haven't cooked. <gasps> yes. <laughs> yes. 
Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Oh my I mean, God. my cooking skills are just, you know, they have really, really improved, but still I'm, I'm just longing to have, to sit in a cafe and a restaurant, to go to an art gallery. Oh, I feel like turn down, I'm an introvert. I'm looking forward to turning down invitations. <laughs> oh my God. Necessity has been the mother of so many skill sets during this pandemic. How many people learned how to cut their bangs? There's just all kinds of things that we didn't know how to do before this happened. And now we know how to do all these interesting things. Um, but yeah, I want, I want to go to a restaurant. I want to sit inside. Mm-hmm. I want uh, the wait staff to not have to wear hazmat suits. Um, <laughs> I want there to be somebody sitting at a table next to me, which I didn't think that was ever going to be something that I wanted. Um, mm-hmm. And I would like to get up and go to the bathroom without having to put on PPE. <laughs> That's what I would like to be able to do. These are wild times we live in. Anyway. Um, if you could say something to every childless person ever, mm. what would you want them to know? You have done nothing wrong by being childless and you are nothing wrong by being childless. Yeah. You, you, you have nothing to prove to the world. Replace childless with single. And that's exactly what I would say as well. Society needs to do a better job of doing this shit for us. We shouldn't have to work so hard to change the mind of the globe on this stuff. Like there should be more welcoming to different ideas about the way women or anyone exists and shows up in the world. I I agree. I think I think our lack of capacity to see, tolerate, and talk to difference is actually at the core of all of the issues we're facing in human societies. We need to get so much better at seeing and talking and understanding to people who aren't like us. Fully agree with you. And with that beautiful word of wisdom, I will wrap up this episode. But before I do, please tell everyone uh, where they can find you online. I'm going to link to Gateway Women, but how else can they keep up with what you're doing these days? Okay, well, so Gateway Women, and I'm on Instagram and on Twitter, at Gateway Women. And we've got some amazing things coming up um, in 2021. Our online B, which is our Plan B mentorship program, which is online, starts again in April. And uh, you can enrollment for that is now open. That always sells out every year. It's a year-long program. We have one for North America and Australia and one for UK, EU. And also, thanks to the pandemic, our Reignite Weekend, which is the kind of signature weekend that I created in 2012, is also now online. And because it's online, which is brilliant, it's now available um, in Australia um, and also in North America. And that is led live. But, you know, we have facilitators facilitators leading it um, in February in in North America, in March in Australia. And that's really exciting. And uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, look for me in your bookshop, Living the Life Unexpected. and, And you will hear from Shaney, when my book about the single childless woman is ready, I just know it. <laughs> Without a doubt. That is, yeah. that is my ask to all of my guests. Email me anytime you are creating anything for this audience and I will tell them. We have to share these resources because no one else is sharing them for us. So thank you so much for joining me. This was such a joy and a pleasure and in my opinion, the perfect way to kick off 21, 2021. Thank you so much. Thank you, Shane.